Okay. Uh, so to start off this morning, uh, I'm going to take you guys with me back back in time to the summer between my uh, senior year of high school and my freshman year of college. And I remember getting this very exciting package uh, from Vanderbilt. It came in a manila folder, and I was so curious what it was. I ripped it open, and what I found inside was it looked like a phone book. Like I was so confused, but I realized it was the course catalog. Wow. Did you guys ever get one of those in the mail? You know what I'm talking about? And uh, for, for a freshman in college, that, it felt like the most magical thing. It was like, oh, this mythical place I've been hearing about for so long. Here, like, all of this knowledge is at my fingertips, right? And I remember, like, flipping through the, maybe this tells you more about me than anything else, but <laughs> that was me at the beginning of my freshman year. I'm flipping through the course catalog and just so eager. Like, look at all these classes I can take. I remember signing up for mass media and politics, and I showed up there on the first day of class and realized I was the only freshman in the classroom. Uh, worst grade I ever got, probably in my life, was in that class. But I was so excited about all the new things I got to learn in class. Fast forward to my senior year, right? I remember showing up, uh, just the way I registered for classes, so different as a senior, right? trying to figure out, okay, which classes fit into my schedule, satisfy the requirements, and don't require too much work. And I definitely remember showing up to a class for the first time and being like, oh, no, look at that syllabus. I'm out of here, right? I will find a class with much less reading than this class. What changed? Because there was something that changed in me, and I think there's something that changes in a lot of us over the course of our lives. It's that our curiosity so often uh, gets uh, gets snuffed out, doesn't it? That there's this kind of like bright-eyed, bushy-tailed desire to learn, being curious about our world that is so true uh, about us in, in different stages of our lives, especially when we're younger. And that as we get older and have more experience in the world and believe that we know everything and life gets hard, our curiosity gets, in some ways, kind of beat out of us. And that can even happen here at church, can't it? Oh, yeah. Been here before. Heard this one before. Oh, yeah, I know it's coming this morning, right? And maybe it doesn't even sound that cynical. Maybe it's just, hey, I'm like, I'm doing the deal. I'm showing up, doing the thing I'm supposed to do. And that what we can forget is that, uh, like we talked about in the call to worship, we have a God who desires and delights to meet with us, to speak to us and to teach us. And because of that, we get to come in here with curiosity of what is God going to speak this morning? So I'm going to invite Alicia to come up. Alicia is going to read our passage for us this morning. And we're going to do what we've been doing all throughout the sermon series. I'm going to ask you, after Alicia reads, what from this passage are you curious about? And again, I want you to think about it as a way that we're, we're exercising that muscle of remembering that this is not a show that, that we're showing up here to meet with the God who delights to speak to us. So this is, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Mark 9, is the passage that we're going to be in. Mark 9, uh, verses 14 through 29. It'll also be up here on the screen, so you can follow along up here if you don't have a Bible or, or your phone with you. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, 
for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father and the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that, a crowd came running together. He rebuked the, un- um, sorry, a crowd came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. And he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Pray with me. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. Lord, there are so many questions that we have about it and ask that as we uh, open the text this morning, Lord, we ask that you would be speaking to us, that you'd be using my words, uh, and that that would, uh, that would touch our hearts, or that you would be touching our hearts this morning and strengthening our faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so another demon passage, right? We talked about that last week. It generated a lot of questions, so we'll see today. What questions do you have about this passage? Yeah, what's the difference between an unclean spirit and a demon? Did the boy look dead or was he actually dead? Yeah, how long had this demon been with the boy if it had been with him since childhood? Yeah, is the father's statement, I believe, help my unbelief, a prayer? Yeah, there's probably a note in your Bible that says that some manuscripts say prayer and fasting, so why was it left out of this, uh, this text that we read this morning? What were they doing if they weren't praying? <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about that, actually. <laughs> Yeah, is Jesus angry when he said when he calls uh, the crowd a faithless generation? So there's a ton of directions we could go uh, with the passage this morning, and and what I uh, 
what I want to say here to start is that uh, what we have in this passage is, is an account of Jesus interacting with evil, right? With this kind of evil spiritual being. And we talked about this last week because this was another kind of situation that was similar last week. And one of the things we talked about is the power of evil in our world being real. That's true. We see that in this passage in the same way that we believe in the spiritual being God who is in and of himself good and the definition of good. There are other spiritual beings in this, in this world, in our universe, that push against that, that fight against that, who have rebelled against him, and that those spiritual beings are evil. That's true. And those same spiritual beings that were back there then resisting God are present even today uh, resisting God, even here in Nashville. And yet, the passage that we're in today is not about, uh, the reason it's in Scripture is not to build our demonology. The primary focus of this passage is not to give us a theology of demons. What this passage is primarily about is faith. What, what the nature of faith is, how faith gets expressed. And, and us talking about faith this morning is really important for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons it's important for us to talk about what faith is is because it teaches us how we push against the evil in this world. Right? Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says there are kind of two, uh, two errors we can fall into when we think about the spiritual realm. One error is that we can be ardent materialists. We can treat the world as if there's no, there are no spiritual forces present in the world at all. And scripture would tell us if we're living like that, we're missing a big chunk of what's happening in the world around us. But there's kind of an opposite extreme you can go to where you treat the world uh, as, if, uh, as if you're a magician and that everything in the world is the product of these unseen spiritual forces that you can't control. And what Lewis would encourage us to think about is that we would be balanced as the Bible is balanced. That scripture acknowledges the reality of the spiritual world that teaches us how to engage in it, and yet it does not in any way tell us to be obsessed with these dark spiritual forces. And by focusing on faith this morning, that helps us get the right balance as we approach this world that has all kinds of spiritual forces swirling around in it. It teaches us how to live and stand strong in the midst of that. So this morning we're going to talk about faith, specifically faith and doubt and how they interact, and then faith and pride and how they interact. So faith and doubt and faith and pride. That's kind of where we're going this morning. So just to kind of set us up for the way that this passage uh, unfolds is that what has happened right before this in Mark is the story of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So this is what a, what a big word. Uh, basically, Jesus has taken three of his closest disciples, uh, John, James, and Peter, and they've gone up onto this mountain and what these three disciples see is Jesus in all of his glory. What does that mean exactly? We don't totally know, but Jesus is, is glowing. There's light radiating from him, and he's on top of this mountain, and he's speaking with Moses and with Elijah. And they're talking about what is about to happen in Jesus' life as he goes to Jerusalem to be crucified and resurrected. When we talk about a mountaintop experience, uh, I don't know that this is 100% true, but I've, I was thinking about this this week, that that may be where we get that expression from. Like up on top of this mountain, there's this experience that happens that for Peter and James and John just like opens up their eyes to the glory of Jesus. It's, it's transformative for them. And then they come down from this mountain with Jesus and this is the scene they walk into. It's chaos. 
So these nine disciples, I don't know what they were doing while Jesus was up on the mountain with these three disciples, but they were doing something. And they're hanging out. This father comes to them to bring a, he brings his son and asks them to cast out the demon from his son and they can't do it. And there's this crowd that gathers around them and there are these scribes that have probably been following the disciples kind of trying to get some dirt on them. And so when the disciples can't follow through on what they should be able to do, they start arguing with them. So there's this whole kind of mess of a scene and Jesus walks down into it. And when he comes down, he's, he says, basically, what's going on here? Because he asks them, what are you arguing about with them? And then this father speaks up. It says, someone from the crowd answered him. This is verse 17. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able So we've got this, this father who's expressing this pain uh, of, that his son is in. When we come to this passage, I think wh- what we see is that it's primarily about faith because when we skip down a few verses, this is what the father cries out. The father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. And that cry right there, that prayer, is the central focus of this passage. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That we're being invited into is a deeper understanding of what faith is and how that faith interacts with doubt. Because whenever we talk about faith, that we've got to acknowledge that there's an elephant in the room when we do that. And when we're talking about faith, the elephant in the room is always doubt, isn't it? Uh, this is a quote from a guy, James K.A. Smith, that I think it speaks to this. He says, even as faith endures in our secular age, that's the world that we live, the, the time that we live in, a secular age. Even as faith endures in our secular age, believing doesn't come easy. Faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of its contestability. We don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. We're all Thomas now. He goes on to say, most of us live in this cross-pressured space where both our agnosticism and our devotion are mutually haunted and haunting. And if our only guides were new atheists or religious fundamentalists, we would never know that this vast contested terrain even existed, even though most of us inhabit this space every day. Do any of you connect with that? I will tell you, I do. And maybe I'll ask it again and ask you to be brave enough to raise your hand. Okay? Do any of you connect to that? Okay. I just want you to appreciate that basically most of the people in this room raise their hands. Is that encouraging to you? Just to be reminded that you are not alone when you have doubts about God. Because I think what is so often true, well, I will use an I statement, okay. What is often true for me when I experience doubts about God uh, is that I immediately judge those doubts and judge myself for having them. That if I have questions about who God is, I mean, what am I even doing up here? 
This is my whole life. And so all of, all of these questions suddenly become not even about the questions themselves or my relationship with God, but they become about all of the judgments that I put on myself for having the questions in the first place. Do any of you relate to that? Okay. <laughs> and what I, one of the things I so appreciate about seeing this passage in Scripture is that it reminds us that we are not alone. That faith is not the absence of doubt. That faith is the question of where we go with our doubt. That faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is about where we go with our doubt. And that's true for us now, and that has been true for God's people all across the history of God's people, just as it was true for this father. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's our cry, isn't it? And we recognize that we, in, in the Father. We know what he's saying because he's speaking the cry that's in our own hearts almost every day. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And friends, the good news is that Jesus honors that cry. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. What a relief. That Jesus doesn't stand back from the man and say, well, you believe, help, help, help your unbelief. Well, we'll see. Could you ask in a different way? Could you say it a little bit stronger? Try again? No, Jesus doesn't say any of that. He moves toward this man and toward his son with that confession of faith. Because what's true about faith is that our faith, is not a, our faith is not in our faith. Our faith being in our faith means our faith is in a very weak object. Our faith is in a totally different object of our faith as Christians. Our faith isn't in the strength of our faith. Our faith is in the object of our faith, which is Christ. And so the strength of our faith is not about how strongly we believe something. It's about how strong the object of our faith is. Okay. I need a volunteer. Okay. Duke, you want to do it? Okay, Duke, come on up. Okay. <laughs> okay, Duke, will you sit in this chair for us? Okay. So you really, you just, just sat right down, right? Uh, do you have faith that this chair will hold you? Yeah, that's why you sat in it, right? Now, what if, what if... <laughs> <laughs> Now you're worried the chair is a trap. Okay, actually, this is, this is perfect for the illustration, right? Okay, now we've introduced worry into the equation. I'm worried that the chair isn't going to hold me. But does your worry about the chair holding you change whether or not the chair can hold you? No. Right? The fear... <laughs> you're still sitting on it, yes, right? The fear that you may experience as you're up here in the middle of this illustration, wondering is the chair going to hold you, does that change the chair's ability to hold you? Yeah. No. Because the chair itself is strong. Even if you stopped believing that the chair existed, or you wondered if the chair existed, would the chair still hold you? Yes. Yeah. Your doubts or questions about the chair don't change the chair's ability to hold you. 
<laughs> there you go. Give it up for Duke, huh? <laughs> yes, we replaced the chair with Jesus. It's exactly right. Right, that how Duke felt about the chair when he was sitting in the chair didn't change the chair's ability to hold him. That faith is about the object of our faith, not about the strength of our faith itself. One of the commentaries I was reading uh, said this this week. It said, this is from a guy named James Edwards. He says, true faith is always aware of how small and inadequate it is. True faith takes no confidence in itself, nor does it judge Jesus by the weakness of his followers. It looks to the more powerful one who stands in the place of God, whose authoritative word restores life from chaos. True faith is unconditional openness to God, a decision in the face of all, to the contrary, that Jesus is able. That true faith is always aware of how inadequate it is. In verse 22, the father says to Jesus, excuse me, verse 23, I know it is verse 22, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. What the father is appealing to here is the power and the compassion of Jesus. For us to know that Jesus uh, is worthy of our faith is to know that he is powerful and that he's compassionate. Because it's possible to have one of those things without the other, isn't it? I think about this whenever I'm on customer service phone calls. You're telling me you want to help me, and I think you have the power to help me, but it doesn't seem like you're actually helping me, right? So something is off here. Either you have the desire and not the ability, or you have the ability and not the desire. But for whatever reason, it took me eight weeks to get the internet, which means something was off here. A man says to Jesus, if, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And this father's cry, it, it teaches us about what's really going on so often with our doubts. That often doubt is an intellectual response to an emotional problem. And not even an emotional problem. An intellectual response to an emotional question or, or an intellectual response to the pain that's in our lives. I mean, think about Thinking about the pain of this father's life uh, is almost too much for me. When he says that there was, that the spirit throws his son into the fire to destroy him, who do you think was pulling that son out of the fire? It was this dad. It was this kid's mom. Right, the fire that was a part of their everyday life was the, the way that they lived their life day in and day out. Someone had to be constantly watching this fire and watching the boy to make sure he didn't throw himself into it. Who do you think it was who pulled this boy out of the water when the spirit threw him in there to drown him? It was his dad. It's not hard to imagine 
that this dad, when he woke up, that his first thought was, what is my son's day going to be like? Because that told him everything about what his day was going to be like. And so he says to Jesus, if you can, have compassion on us. Because what's so often true about our pain is that our pain is screaming at us that God is not powerful or that God is not able. That God is not powerful if he's not able or that he doesn't actually have compassion on us. That it wants to change our picture of who God is or it wants to change our picture of our relationship with him. Maybe God is powerful, maybe he is compassionate, but not for me. And then as that pain goes on, like this father, how long? Oh, we don't know, but we know that he says, from childhood. He's saying to Jesus, a long time, Jesus. It's been like this a long time. And that what's so true about our pain is that uh, it, it competes against, it fights against uh, what's true about God in our lives. And what Jesus tells this father, he says, if, when Alicia read it, she, she said it, right? If, if I have the power, if I'm compassionate, Jesus is saying, if, no, I am. I am more powerful than you can even imagine, and my compassion is far greater than you can wrap your heart around. And so when his father brings his boy, I mean, think about what this was like for him. We don't know how long did he have to travel to bring his demon-possessed son, demon-tormented son to Jesus. What would that have been like to travel with this boy? And he goes through all these risks to bring him to this band of kind of itinerant exorcists, hoping that they can do something for his son that no one else has been able to do. And he shows up, and they can't do it. How devastating. And yet, he doesn't leave because he's still there when Jesus comes down the mountain. And when Jesus says, what's this argument about? He says, it's about me. Everyone else here has forgotten this, but it's about me and it's about my son. If you can do anything, help us. Jesus says, if? And then what he's pulling out of this man is the gift of faith that this man already has. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That his emotions are so turned around in the moment, aren't they? God, I, th I thought I knew what I was coming for and it didn't work out the way I wanted, but I'm still hopeful that it can happen. And, and oh, he's turned all the way upside down and what comes out of him is this confession, Lord, I believe, this prayer, help my unbelief. And Jesus says yes to that. The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deeper impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his, his deeper impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. 
what Dave Ortland talks about in Gentle and Lowly, that compassion is, is at the very heart of who Jesus is. If, of course, says Jesus. And that what that means for us is that now our doubt becomes uh, it's fertile soil for faith to take root and grow even stronger. That faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is where we go with our doubt. And what this passage does is it invites us to bring those questions, whether they're intellectual and, and all of the emotional pain that's under them, it invites us to bring all of that to the feet of Jesus. And to put our faith not in ourselves or in the strength of our faith, but in him. To put our faith not in the outcomes that we're hoping Jesus gives us, but in him. Not in our faith as a way that we get to manipulate God to get what we want, but that we would put our faith in him, him, the he who is able and the he who is compassionate. And that we would receive and rest in whatever our circumstances are uh, in the object of our faith and the compassion and the power of Jesus. And when we wonder, is God actually that compassionate toward us? Does he actually have the power to do what we need? That what we get to remind ourselves of is what happened on the cross. Because on the cross, we see a suffering son, don't we? We see a son who throughout his whole life has been tormented by evil. A son who has walked through fire and water, judgment and death, and yet who did that willingly. What we see is a father who's so delighted in us that he allowed his son to go through that so that we could be brought to him, that we could be assured of his compassion toward us because of what we see in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus that he who did not spare his own son for us, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him also give us all things? That Jesus is never short on compassion towards you. He is always overflowing with it. He is never short on power towards you. He is always overflowing with it. And the invitation of this passage then is that we would bring all of who we are to him all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the questions that that stirs up in us, that we would bring all of that to him and that we would let him remind us what's true. So no, doubt is not the enemy of faith. Doubt is the soil that faith grows in. Now the real, the real suffocator of faith that we see in this passage is pride. Pride. That is the faith killer. Way back in Mark 6, 7, the disciples were given the authority to cast out demons. Jesus gave them that authority and then he sends them out in pairs. The craziest short-term mission trip ever, right? They're equipped with the power to, to heal, to cast out demons, and they come back to Jesus and they say, we did it. Even the spirits were subject to us. And yet here, we see that they were not able. They come to Jesus privately and ask, why could we not cast it out? Yeah, because that's what you do when you can't do something you say you can do. You ask in private why it didn't work, right? 
I always think about this when they interview swimmers in the Olympics after they get done racing. They're like, hey, you didn't perform as well as you thought you would. How did that go for you? They're like, come on, guys, right? That's what the disciples ask in private. They're, they're, they're ashamed. They're embarrassed about what's happened. They say, give, come on, give us some space here. But then they ask Jesus, what was going on? Why couldn't we cast this demon out? Jesus says, well, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And let me be clear here. Jesus is not describing, diff- like there aren't different uh, recipes for casting out different kinds of demons. It's not like, well, you know, you got some demons where you got to speak the right words. You got some demons where you got to pray. You got some demons where you got to, that's not what this is about. There's nowhere else in scripture that would make us think that that is true. So we never interpret clear parts of scripture by less clear parts of scripture. That the, na- the name of Jesus is always powerful enough. That's it. So that's not what's at issue here, is that they got the wrong recipe. The issue here is that these guys are trying to use a vacuum cleaner and it's unplugged from the wall, right? It's like the vacuum is not working and they spend hours going through, taking the whole thing apart, trying to figure out what's going on, and it's just been unplugged the whole time. Because what's true about the power that Jesus gave them and it's true about the power that he has given us is that is a power that we always have because the Holy Spirit is always in us. But the benefits of Jesus, the blessings of Jesus, the gifts of Christ are never, they're never operative apart from Jesus himself. You can never separate Christ and his blessings. They're the same thing. To have the peace of Christ is to have Christ. To have, the, to have Christ is to have his patience. So what we see the disciples doing here is they have totally forgotten where this authority comes from, manifested in the fact that they don't even pray about it. Think about that. How, how Wow. Like, what is happening here? Are they taking turns? Like, the man comes with his son, and one person can't do it, and Andrew is like, okay, well, you know, just give me a second try, guys, right? Like, they're people. You know how this goes. And he can't quite get it, so someone else is like, well, ta- you know, like, tap me in. So Judas comes in. Judas is trying, no, and no one can get it. They rotate through everyone. No one can get it. No one can get this demon out. And then the scribes say to them, see, this is ridiculous. This whole thing is ridiculous. None of you could do it anyway. We knew it. And now, they're arguing with the scribes about that. And this whole time, no one even thinks to pray. Like, wow, guys, we have really missed the place where this authority comes from, haven't we? And it's so easy to look at them and say, well, that's ridiculous. But how often is that true about us? Oh, so often. That we have all these things that we believe we are doing for God, and yet we never talk to God about them? that we never ask him for the power to do them or for him to accomplish the things that we can't do for ourselves. And listen, this is very important. I'm not, what I'm not saying is like, well, if you didn't pray about it, no wonder it didn't happen. You, know, you should have just prayed about it more. That is not the point of this. The, what this is about is showing us that it's really easy for our hearts to become disconnected from Jesus himself that we want to take all of the gifts of Christ and we want those things to make us self-sufficient on our own as if we didn't need him. And that is never the point of Jesus' work in our life. His work is never to mature us to the point where we don't need him. His work is always to grow in us a greater sense of our dependence upon him. And that pride, our ability, to, our, our tendency to say, no, I can do it myself, that is what suffocates the power of faith in our lives. 
And that's true on so many different levels, isn't it? And maybe you're here and you're exploring faith for the first time. Or exploring re-engaging with God. What I would beg is don't let pride be the thing that keeps you away from him. If you're looking for the point where you have every single one of your questions about Jesus answered, and then you'll put your faith in him, friends, I'm going to tell you that time is never going to come. He's too big for that. It doesn't mean there aren't good answers out there. That's not what I'm saying. There are. There are all, kind of intellect, there are all kinds of, of important intellectual reasons to believe, uh, to believe in Christ. And yet, at the end of the day, if what you're waiting for is for all of, all of your questions to be answered in a way that's intellectually satisfying to you, what you're relying on is your ability to understand the entire world. That's never going to happen. That pride could be the thing that keeps you from faith. That's what's so often true in, this, in, in a religious experience that we could even show up at church but come to believe that the thing that is drawing us closer to God is our own efforts. We could come to believe that God loves us because of what we have done for him. That's not true. Right? That's putting our faith in ourselves, in our own ability to please God. No, 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 that is not what this is about. But as we mature, as we grow in Christ, what we recognize more and more is the gift of his love toward us, not what we've done to earn it. Now, this, is so, this is so critical for the way that we live our day-to-day lives in this world, for the way that we wrestle against evil, the forces that are arrayed against us and the evil that comes out from us in sin. The way that we would push back against those things is not in our own power, but Christ's power that's at work in us. And the way that we call upon that is through prayer. And there is a relationship between the amount that we experience or, or, uh, or know our dependence on God and what our prayer life looks like. Those things are connected, right? And that the more, the more you know and live into your dependence on God, the, the more you're gonna pray. Because you'll feel your need uh, to have that gap bridged between, between who you are and between what God wants to accomplish. And what I want you to hear there is the invitation of that. To lean in and say, oh, I have a father who wants to meet me in all the things that I cannot do. I will tell you, sometimes that is the richest time in my prayer life is telling God all the things that I cannot do. Lord, I cannot do it. All the things that I want for our church that I cannot do. So many. For me to stop and say, oh, Lord, we... I want to see the gospel explode in East Nashville. I want to see your power at work in the people who are in this room, in my friends, in the people outside of this room. I want to see more people who are outside of this room in this room because we want to see you changing them. I can't do that. On how freeing it is to say, Jesus, would you do that? Because you desire that even more than I do. And that works itself out I think sometimes when we think about prayer, we think about, like, how long did I sit on my knees uh, in the morning? You know, was it a minute or five minutes or 15 minutes? Or if you're really holy, it's like an hour. I don't know who has time for that, but that would be amazing. And that's true, okay? That kind of prayer is important. What we're also talking about here is the prayers that you pray in the moment. Lord, help me. Is that a prayer? 
Is that a prayer? Yes, that is a prayer. Right? Lord, help me. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Oh, you don't need an hour to pray that. You've got access to that whenever. Sticking that plug back in the wall for the vacuum cleaner, right? Reminding ourselves where our power comes from. And that whether you're a person who wrestles with doubt or a person who wrestles with pride or probably you do both, right? That the call is that we would come and let and, and experience uh, the call is that we would come to our Jesus who is able and has compassion on us. The Jesus who delights to meet us in our dependence, who delights to show up uh, and move toward us regardless of our circumstances, in the midst of our circumstances. The Jesus who has promised us his Holy, Holy Spirit and filled us with power and invites us to call on that whenever, whenever we, whenever we need it, to call on it always. Think about Jesus when he's casting out demons. We never see him pray. Why is that? Let's think about that this week. I think it's because Jesus is always in prayer, right? That he's always talking to his heavenly father. He's always aware of his dependence. That Jesus himself would say, I don't do anything unless the father tells me to do it. What? You're God. Now what he's, what he's illustrating for us is the call that the call, the relationship that we have with God as his children, the children that he delights in and has compassion on. So what we're going to do as we kind of move out into our, the rest of our worship service is the, the band's going to go ahead and come up and they're going to give us a time uh, to, to sing and respond and we'll have some time built in to, uh, to pray uh, individually and also corporately as a part of this time. So let me, let me pray for us and we'll... Uh, We'll go back, we'll respond to God in worship. Father, we are thankful for your word. Father, we're thankful that you, uh, that you have compassion on us. Lord, that you know our frame, you know that we're dust, you know our weakness, God, that we are a people who are so often pushed back and forth by doubt and by pride, Lord, and we cry out to you even now as your children, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Oh, Lord, we're prideful, forgive us. Jesus, would you move toward us uh, with your great compassion? Lord, we, we know that you are able. Uh, would, you, would you have compassion on us uh, today, even as we respond to you this morning? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.